Well, good afternoon to all of you on this last great day of the feast. We've come to the end of another cycle of God's holy days throughout the year, His annual holy days. My wife Carol and I were recently at the airport to pick someone up, and as we were waiting for them, we noticed a lot of individuals coming through the airport. And there was one particular lady that caught my eye. She was scantily clad and tattooed to the hilt. I say caught my eye, not for the wrong reasons. They've just obvious that she looked a little bit on the strange side. Uh, she had a hairstyle right out of a Mad Max movie. Uh, not that I've watched Mad Max movies, but I have seen a few minutes of one or two of them. I'm not even sure if they're still around. But if you ever have seen a Mad Max movie, you see a bunch of strange characters. I'm not sure what the plot of those movies are. I wasn't even sure in the few minutes that I watched one of them who the good guys were and the bad guys. Maybe they were all bad guys. I don't know, but they just didn't look too normal to me at any rate. Now, as I, I watched this woman, I could not help but to think, what is going on in her mind? And I, I came to realize, I say I came to realize, I think I've always realized this, that there's something missing from people's lives. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for identity. And they don't really know what it is that they're looking for, but they go out after uh, this identity to to fit in or to fit out. Sometimes it's to, uh, to to be on the outs with everybody else. It's hard to say, but they were looking. They're looking for something, and this woman obviously had some hang-ups there. Something was missing, and they're empty inside. If you were to get to know her, however, you would probably find that she is not so abnormal after all. She's probably a, a real person who has the same hopes and desires that you and I have, uh, same dreams in some respects, not the, exactly the same because we hope for the kingdom of God, but in other words, the same emotions, the same desire to love and to be loved and to fit in and to be respected. These are individuals searching for something, searching for meaning and not knowing where or how to find it. But deep down inside, they are not all that different from you and me. Now, they may be far more damaged because of their background, but nevertheless, they're, they start out the same as you and I did, as little babies, uh, not having any uh, programming one way or the other. Uh, they just had the opportunity to, to live, and their circumstances affected them in a different way than they may have affected you or me. Uh, they're people that the Father, God the Father loves, loves deeply, and Jesus Christ died for them as well as for us. And this last great day is a recognition of that fact. It shows that God's, that God is impartial and that He has love for all. And we ought to be eternally thankful for it because if it came right down to it, unless God had opened our minds, we would be along with the rest of this world, deceived and, you know, going about our lives in a way that would not be productive and, and profitable in the long run. It might be profitable in this life, but we all have an expiration date, as sometimes people say, and then what? Uh, we would be gone forever. So in this last sermon of the year, of the festival season, Consider how wonderful and how joyous the reality of this last great day will be when it does occur. You know, God desires that all men everywhere, 
men, women, eventually children growing up, that all be saved. And John 3 and verse 16, we're very familiar with that. I know that we've all read that. We've all heard it. We have a booklet on the subject, which, uh, again, I, I like to promote it because it covers about eight different doctrinal topics that are so fundamental to what we teach in the church. And it starts out with the whole subject of of who or what is God, because the world does not know. The world is totally confused about God. And yet, that particular uh, booklet explains a little bit about that, as we have other literature as well. But here we have in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God the Father, as the one who loved the Son, who had been there with Him from the beginning, whatever that was, uh, for eternity, I guess we'd have to say, because there was no beginning in that sense. But He was there always with Him, and He gave Him as a sacrifice and had to watch as you and I, figuratively speaking, as mankind in general beat Him, uh, tortured Him, and eventually killed him on the stake uh, by putting a spear into his side and causing his blood to flow out on the ground. We see that, that, that picture there. And so God the Father was the one who gave his Son for that purpose. And Jesus Christ, of course, was willing to go through it. And he had to go through the suffering as well. Both suffered during that time, no doubt. There's, there's just no doubt that as a parent watching his son or her son go through something like that, to hold back on anger, the desire to just wipe out all those people who are doing that, uh, that would certainly be our reaction. We'd want to get even. We'd want to do something about it. And yet they went through that sacrifice so that you and I and this lady in the airport and the fellow that mowed my lawn and this fellow, the Tim Hortons, that walked through the, the door or held the door open for us, or that lady that uh, was was uh, uh, dressed and, and uh, uh, haircut and everything else so, so different, so that they could have life as well, every bit as much as you and me. We just have the opportunity of knowing sooner and being in on the ground floor for whatever reason God called us. We know He calls the weak of the world, so He didn't call many great among us. I don't know uh, that we have any great among us in this age, but nevertheless, he, he called us, and He's going to call these other individuals. He's going to give them an opportunity. Notice First Timothy 2. This is so fundamental, and in young people, who are watching this, I hope that you won't just say that this is, well, this is just another sermon, and uh, we'll endure it so that we can go out and have ice cream afterward, or we can go home, or whatever it is that we can want to do, uh, not necessarily go to the beach on the uh, the Sabbath day, a Sabbath day, but I, I hope that you will, since you are already here, that you'll take the time to listen and to learn, because this is so different from what your friends at school or in your neighborhood believe. So different from your peers. They don't understand these things. And these are absolutely wonderful truths that God makes very clear to us in His Scriptures. Notice 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires 
God our Savior desires all men to be saved. That's His desire. That's His will. That's what He wants to do. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now notice, and to come to the knowledge of the truth, in one sense it has to come to the knowledge of the truth before one can be saved. But how many people in this world have never had an opportunity for the truth? We can go right back to the time when Christ was crucified and resurrected, and people on the other side of the earth, whether it be down in Australia or Central or South America or North America, where I happen to be at this time, or Europe, where a number of our brethren are, or in Asia, perhaps uh, in the Philippines or someplace else, Thailand, all of these places around the world... There were people that never heard of the name of Jesus Christ and yet died within a a matter of days after Christ did. They had no opportunity to know the truth. And that is just a a fact of, uh, of opening up our eyes to see and to think a little bit. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And when people say, well, God will judge them based on what they know, get real. As we're told... It says that there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to God the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we have to recognize that if they never heard of the name of Jesus Christ, they have no chance whatsoever to know the truth. And if they don't know the truth, to be saved. Is God going to save Buddhists and Hinduists and Muslims? And we don't have to stop there. So-called Christians who've done nothing more than accept pagan practices and put Christ's name on them. That doesn't make sense at all. But God says that he, he desires, or Paul says to Timothy, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice over in Second Peter 2, Second Peter 2 and verse 9. I know this is all very fundamental. It's all, uh, it's not difficult to understand. Second Peter 3, I think I said too. Second Peter 3 and verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the verse before that talks about how a day with or a thousand years is to God as one day. God is not slack concerning His promises. He's very patient. For you and me, a year goes by and it can seem like it takes a long time. We've been going through this COVID situation for less than three years. By the time this is given at the feast, it'll be less than three years that we've been going through this. And yet it seems like an eternity to us. And we wonder how long before Christ returns, how long before his kingdom comes. Well, he's patient. He's lived a long time. And so he can afford to be patient in that way. And he wants us to learn patience as well. And he wants us to to recognize that he's given mankind every opportunity to, to prove, frankly, that it doesn't work when you reject his way. He wants to give us plenty of time because Adam and Eve made that decision. Adam specifically chose a different way. He said, I want to do it my way. And God says, okay, do it your way. You've got 6,000 years, but it's not a good idea. And it will take us 6,000 years, I suppose, before we finally get the, the point 
It's not a good idea. It just doesn't work. But he's not slack concerning his promises. He's long-suffering toward us. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if that's God's will, that none should perish, that all should come to the knowledge of the truth, that all should come to repentance, then either God is weak and unable to bring the overwhelming majority of mankind to that place, or there's something else to this other than the traditional so-called Christian view or category or order of events as they, they would see it. Simple observation and logic tell us a, a different story if we only look at what is happening in our world. So let's go to Revelation 20. We virtually always go to Revelation 20 during this last great day sermon. And I know that there are those who think, well, we, we just like to hear something new, something novel, something different. But consider the first time you ever heard this. And don't allow the fact that we're repeating it to be a, a cause for just checking out and not really appreciating the, the wonderful news that we have. This is something the world doesn't understand, and yet it is so clear when you read the Scriptures. When we go to the end of uh, the book of Revelation, the 19th chapter, we see it uh, talks about Christ coming back. And he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. Then chapter 20, verse 1, and verse 2 and verse 3 speaks of taking hold of that dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. Or you know, he is bound for a thousand years. He's not there to deceive the nations any longer. He's removed. That's the day of atonement. Then we come to verse 4, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their foreheads. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is what we just got through celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth, and how you and I have the opportunity to rule over cities and various other uh, duties and responsibilities to bring peace to this troubled world. And we have that opportunity for a thousand years, and there will be people during that time who will uh, follow what Christ has, has taught uh, through us and and. They will read the Word of God. They will be converted. They will be baptized. They will be faithful. And they'll be resurrected, we think, at the end of that millennium time. Uh, we, we don't know absolutely, but it would seem like they would be resurrected at that, that time. And then they would be given the opportunity to work with this great innumerable multitude of people that's going to come up. I don't mean the great innumerable multitude of Revelation 7, but this massive humanity, the billions who have lived and who have died never knowing the truth. And so he says, verse 5, he, says, he talks about this resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming, but he says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, in reading some of the things that I was uh, reviewing here, of the general resurrection as the world sees it, they don't understand this. This clear statement that there are those who are 
Christ, and they are resurrected at His coming, but the rest of the dead, those who are not Christ, don't live again until a thousand years. So there is a second resurrection. There's a first resurrection, and there clearly is going to be a second resurrection, as we will see here. But he says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. You see, if we are in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. Death for all of eternity has no power. We will have it made at that point. And that's wonderful news because as long as we're in this physical life, uh, you know, God is not going to give up on us. And we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin from time to time. But God will uh, forgive those sins because of the sacrifice of his son. And Jesus Christ is there as our advocate uh, before the Father. Uh, not Mary, not some other saint or whatever, but Jesus Christ is the one who is our advocate before the Father. So it says, Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's the initial reward that we are given, a thousand year reign with Christ. And then, of course, it goes on beyond that. And then it says, When the thousand years have expired, verse 7, Satan will be loosed from his prison. So Satan will be loosed because God wants to know where those people stand at the end of the millennium. They will become so used to everything that some of them will think that, well, we'd like to do it our way without having to follow uh, what, what God is teaching us. And so he's going to be loosed for a time. He's going to go out and deceive those who allow themselves to be deceived. And then... In verse 11, it says, uh, after he is uh, cast to the lake of fire and, and uh, he's, he's finished off there in his work, it says, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, here the dead, small and great, the great people of the earth, and the little people who... Maybe the world looks down upon, maybe the homeless, uh, maybe the drug addicts, the alcoholics that we see on the street, the, the small as well as the great. And he says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. So here they are. They come up. They did not live again until a thousand years were finished, as it says there uh, in verse 5. But... Here we find that they come up, they are alive again, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the book of life, when you study that, you find that that's the book in which we have to have our names written if we're going to have life, if we're going to live for eternity. And the books that it's talking about here are not books of people's sins, as some people think of. We we already know they didn't make it, otherwise they would have been resurrected in the first resurrection a thousand years earlier. But these are the books that we call the Bible, which have been closed and sealed from them, from their understanding. And suddenly they can open up and it makes sense. And how many people have you heard, they, they, they open the Bible and it just doesn't make sense. In fact, some of you were in that category. You read the Bible before, it didn't make sense, and all of a sudden God began to call you and everything began to make sense. These books have been closed to them. They've been cut off from the tree of life. And yet now, when they come up this time, the 
books are going to be open to them. They're going to have an opportunity to understand. And the book of life is not closed, but it's open for their names to be written in it. Now we read of this resurrection uh, elsewhere. Uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37. We all know what this is about, the Valley of Dry Bones. And young people, I, I want to remind you of this because many, many years ago, decades ago, I was giving a, a Bible study with about 24 teens that had grown up in the church, and we were doing a little bit of Bible charades, and one of them was the Valley of Dry Bones, and, and not a one of them knew anything about this Valley of Dry Bones, and yet every year at the Feast of Tabernacles, or at least most years, it should be every year, this passage of Scripture is read talking about a time when uh, people are going to come up out of their graves to a physical resurrection, not a spirit resurrection. Notice verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. It says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Bones are moist. They're, They're living. But a bone that is very dry has had time to be bleached in the sun, to dry out, and and to be dead. In other words, when it says they're very dry, they're very dead. They're not alive. They're dead. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I always say it, it it just amazes me when, when God asks us a question that only he has the answer to. And so he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is probably thinking, well, why why are you asking me? So I answered, oh, Lord, you know. That's a good answer. I don't know, but you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. These are people who are dead, and it's saying that you shall live again. I will put sinews, those are connecting tissues, ligaments, tendons, so forth, on you, and bring flesh or muscle upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then, not before, but then you shall know that I am the Eternal. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when these bones come together and However God does it, it's, it's symbolic. It's, he's going to take the spirit of man that was in them and he's going to put it into a new body at that point in time because maybe their particular bones were destroyed in a fire or uh, they just uh, you know, got thrown in a stream and battered around and, and turned to dust and sand. But God is going to bring them back to a physical life. That's the point here of flesh and blood and bones and sinews and so forth, and skin covering them. And it says, then you shall know that I am the eternal. Boy, can you imagine what that's going to be like when they come up out of their graves? Whatever their last thought was, it'll be just, boom, like an instant from the last thought they had, even though a thousand or five thousand years have gone by, instantly in their, at least as far as their understanding goes, it'd just be an instant. They won't know about the passage of time. And they're going to come up at that time. And can you imagine how disoriented they will be at that point? Wondering, well, where am I? I I, I was over here. This looks very different from where I was. 
and uh, you know, I I I I I'm just killing somebody, and he was trying to kill me, and uh, that's last I remember. And now I'm I'm here with all this massive people, massive humanity. We don't know that they'll all be in in one place, but nevertheless, there are going to be other people around because there have been a lot of people on the face of the earth. And they come up at that time, and he says in verse 8, I will put sinews on you, verse 7. That was verse 6. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. So notice that Ezekiel prophesied these things. He was the one that had to, as it were, call them forth. I prophesied as a commander, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them. The skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. They were just dead bodies. Now, that's really an interesting thing, because that's a miracle in itself. I mean, the whole thing is a miracle, but without life, without blood coursing through their, their veins and capillaries and all, carrying to every cell in, in the body, without oxygen coming into the lungs and then being picked up by the, the blood, without all that, everything would deteriorate very quickly. But this is a miracle of God. God created life in the first place. He certainly preserved it or long enough to give breath to it. But he says, there was no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So notice again, God tells Ezekiel what to do. And then Ezekiel, in this vision, uh, says, so I prophesied. Ezekiel gave the word as he commanded me. And breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army, and a huge number of people, probably more than Ezekiel could even fathom at the time. He might have been thinking in terms of hundreds of thousands or maybe millions during his lifetime, thinking how many people might have lived. But we can look back on history, and we have almost 8 billion people on earth today, plus all those who have died between you know now and, and all the way back to the beginning. It's going to be a huge number of people. God thinks so big. He doesn't think small as we do. He's going to have a huge family. It's not just one or two kids. He's going to have billions of children in his family before it's over. And then notice, it's in verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Not the Jews, but the whole house of Israel. So that includes all of the, the uh, uh, descendants of Israel, uh, at least them. And sometimes in a case like this, it may include the, the Jews and, and Benjamin and Levi, but certainly the ten tribes. Uh, and, and I think that it's really talking in a broader sense there, the, the whole house of Israel. Now, God worked with Israel first, and then he worked with the Gentiles. So this is not saying that the only people that will come up in resurrection are Israelites. We, we know from the pattern that God has shown us. He's clearly shown us that pattern. But notice what they, they say. They indeed say, the middle part of verse 11, it says, They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. That's going to be their thought when they come up out of their graves. 
they're going to think they just came to the end. And, and all of a sudden, the, the end has come for them, but the next instant they're awake. And so they're, they're thinking the last thoughts that they had. Maybe they were dying of cancer. Maybe they were just about ready to, to crash into another car and uh, have a, a deadly wreck or a plane crash or whatever the, the situation was. Whatever caused them to come to their death, perhaps in warfare, which so many millions of, of young people have died in. But they're going to think our hope is lost. We have no more hope. Life is over for us. That's what they're going to think. But verse 12 says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Eternal. That's when they're going to know God. They didn't know Him before. They really didn't understand who God was. When you look down through all the history of Israel and all of their worship of Baal and all else that they had, or modern-day Israel and the rejection of God altogether and the belief in evolution, even people who believe in, in, in the Bible, you know, superficially, many of them believe in evolution. And if we are the, the product of evolution, what purpose is there? What purpose can there be? Can a, 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 can a life evolve after death into something that will live forever? doesn't hardly make sense. But then they shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my Spirit, this is when God is going to put His Spirit, not the Spirit in man, but God's Spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. That's when they're going to understand for the very first time. And God will work with Israel, but He'll work with all of mankind as we know. And Isaiah, the 65th chapter, we have a passage of Scripture that I think we have always seen it as a little bit uh, cryptic, you might say. Uh, it's a little difficult to to nail it down Exactly, but we certainly have believed it, and I, I do believe that God has inspired His church to understand this this way because there has, this has to fit in some place, and it doesn't fit any place else into God's plan that we can see. <clears throat> so in Isaiah 65, and verse 17 said, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So that seems like it's yet even after the white throne judgment. It seems like it. It says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. You know, sometimes God gives a passage of Scripture and talks about one thing, then fades into something else, and then fades back. Well, he says, He creates Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Again, that seems like that's uh, even beyond the second resurrection. But at some point, and there seems to be a break here, it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Now, once we are spirit beings, there, there is no more death at all. 
And as it talks about there earlier, no weeping and, and crying and so forth, this, we understand this to be talking about this great white throne judgment that God is going to give people 100 years. And that makes sense because there's so much they'll have to unlearn. And as we know from this life, those of us who are older, time goes by very, very quickly. But there are going to be people who are so damaged in this life that when they come up, they're going to have to unlearn a whole lot of things. And then they're going to have to learn the truth. And it's always harder to unlearn something than to learn it from scratch at the beginning. And they're going to build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. So it's talking about a physical existence here. And so while this seems a, a little bit hard to, to sort out exactly the time setting, uh, the, the context certainly does indicate that this is a physical existence and they'll live for a 100 years. They'll be given that 100-year period of time. And it mentions uh, a child shall die a 100 years old. A child is not going to be just, uh, you know, for a few days. For the child, uh, it says, no more, verse 20, shall an infant from there live but a few days. All these little children are going to be resurrected as well. They live maybe just a few days, and they're going to be resurrected. And the old man, who, who had a long time to live the wrong way of life, is going to have his opportunity. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Again, it's, uh, it's a little unclear at times, but we have always understood it to mean that it's talking about this hundred-year period. Now, consider the reaction from these formerly deceived people when they come up out of their graves. Let's notice over in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, and we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, I'll just mention here that chapter 12 is talking about a time yet ahead. It's talking about a great battle that will take place at Jerusalem and in Judah, and how Jerusalem is a... Is a uh, cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. That's in chapter 12 and verse 2. And then it talks about how God is going to intervene to help uh, Jerusalem and Judah at the very end. This is yet in the future. This is not has not taken place yet. And it talks about how Christ, the one that they have uh, uh, pierced, notice verse 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication then they will look on me whom they have pierced. In other words, this will be Christ coming back to save them. They will look on me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They're going to be broken up when they realize that they killed the Messiah. And yet now he's coming back to save them. Then in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, In that day... So this is the time yet ahead of us. It's not talking about the great white throne uh, directly. It's talking more about the millennium at this point in time. It says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. In other words, to cleanse their, their sins. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. And this is the point I want to get to, because whether we're talking about after Christ returns and going into the millennium, or whether we're talking about these people coming back to life once again in the great white throne judgment, there's going to be a little similarity here. 
Verse 3, It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord or the Eternal. Now, that may be more directly at the beginning of the millennium. But his father and his mother who beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. But let's notice verse 4. It shall come to pass in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer. Now, can you imagine those people coming up? in this great white throne judgment. Oh, weren't you Joel Osteen or weren't you Billy Graham? Uh, Oh, no, I was a farmer. I just look like it. I'm a a look-alike. These people are going to be running away from what they once were. Now, maybe not when they're instantaneously resurrected, but once they begin to understand how they deceived the world with their false doctrines and so forth, they're going to be running the other direction. I would be ashamed, they would be ashamed of their vision when he prophesies. Uh, uh, they'll say, I am no prophet. I am a farmer for a man uh, taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And someone will say to him, well, what are those wounds in your hands? You know, there are people historically, especially in places like the Philippines, that they'll hang on a cross uh, during Easter processions. And some will even allow them to have uh, whole, you know, nails put in their hands uh, to nail them to the cross. So uh, these are people that, you know, figuratively, they're going to be running from who they were in the past. They're not going to be telling everybody who they are. They're going to be hiding it at that point in time. And those which were wounded in the house of a friend. So that's a, a little bit of the reaction that we're going to see from those who have set themselves up as ministers, as prophets, as priests, especially those who were the the huge charlatans of ages past, those who knew what they were doing and still did it. There are others out there who perhaps are just caught up and deceived, and maybe they do come across things from time to time and wonder, well, maybe maybe this isn't right, but uh, or if I tell the truth and I lose all my flock or something along that line. But there are those who have just been deliberate deceivers, and then there are those who are deceivers without fully comprehending it. Uh, They've just been deceived themselves. But they'll be running from that. Let's notice also uh, in in Matthew, the 11th chapter, Matthew 11 and verse 20. And this really could not be understood outside of the context of Well, you and I understand that there is a resurrection, a great white throne judgment period, a time when judgment will be upon these people. They'll have an opportunity to choose God's way. This can't be understood in a different context. I'm sure that somebody comes up with an explanation, but it doesn't make sense. This is so clear that there's coming a time of judgment in the future. Verse 20. It says, Then he began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. So these cities in uh, in Israel 
And maybe we could compare that not only to the cities in Israel during Christ's day, but to the cities of America and Britain and Australia and New Zealand and other places around the world, all places around the world. And when we, we realize how much has been given to us in this word, you know, these these other nations, Tyre and Sidon, they didn't have the Bible. Uh, there may have been a few copies here and there in the synagogue, but they didn't have what we have today. They didn't have all the Bible helps. They didn't have all the electronics that we have today. But they did have miracles that people had seen or heard about. And he says here that if those mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. I guess this is from a Catholic view. I don't know. I haven't checked into it, but I'm just trying to figure out how they would explain this. Is that, you know, when the resurrection comes or when their soul goes up to heaven or goes to hell, that it's going to be more less painful for some than others. Or as we understand it, when they come up in a resurrection, uh, people are going to know where they came from. And there are going to be people from Tyre and Sidon that are going to say, how come you didn't believe when all those miracles took place? And it's going to be more tolerable for some than others. You, Capernaum, verse 23. This is Matthew 11:23. You, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades or the grave, for if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, when were the works that were done? Uh, when were the uh, when was Sodom? Uh, when, when did fire rain down upon Sodom? Well, it was a long time from when Jesus is making this this declaration. And so he's saying that if the mighty works that you've seen have been done way back then, you know, 2,000 years ago or 2,500 or maybe uh, 1,800 years ago, whatever it was, at the time of, of Abraham and Lot, at that time, if that had been done then, they would have remained to this day. So they would have repented if they'd seen these great works. And we see that today, that there are people who sometimes know very little, but when God opens their mind, they're they're sponges. They want to learn it all. Whereas sometimes people who are of a religious background who should know better, they want to argue the Scriptures. They want to argue their way around it. And yet God shows that self-righteousness is not a virtue. And He's really condemning the Jews of that day who are so self-righteous that they are more righteous than Tyre and Sidon and uh, Sodom and so forth. And yet, uh, the day of judgment is not going to be so easy for them. It's going to be harder for them to turn around. We could also look at the 12th chapter. And we're very familiar with verse 38 and 39. And it's talking about the sign uh, that an evil and adulterous generation is seeking after a sign, but they will be given the sign of, of Jonah. But let's notice verse 41, right after that. The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment. Now that would go back uh, hundreds of years, 
uh, perhaps as much as a thousand years. You could check that out, the exact period of time. It doesn't matter. The point is it was a long time ago, hundreds of years previous to that. I, actually, not a thousand. In the case of Nineveh, it was more like about 500 years or so, uh, 600 years. Uh, and, and it says, The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment. Notice, in the, the judgment with this generation and condemn it. They're going to rise together with that generation and they're going to condemn that generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So at the time of Jonah, they repented. And yet, the people of Jesus' day didn't repent when they heard the truth preached to them. The Queen of the South, in verse 42, will rise up in the judgment and with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus saying, you know, I'm, I'm greater than Solomon. He wasn't, wasn't arrogant. He, he was. He was the Son of God. And he's saying, you don't hear me, but even the Queen of Sheba listened to Solomon when she came. And that goes back about a thousand years from, from this time. And so those people, when Christ uh, spoke this, they couldn't repent now because they've been dead for hundreds of years. Whether it be Nineveh or whether it be the Queen of Sheba, they were dead hundreds of years prior to this, and yet it's saying that if they had these same things, so they haven't had those things, they haven't had their opportunity to hear these things, and yet it is God's intent that all should come to the knowledge of the truth, that all should be saved, that all should come to repentance, as we read earlier. And yet they've never had that opportunity yet, and if you take out the Second resurrection, what we read there in the book of Revelation and what we read in the book of Ezekiel, if we take that out of the picture, where do they fit? Where is this judgment that it's talking about? Does this mean that they've missed out, but, well, they just won't have it as bad as somebody else? The way the world looks at it, they, they'll have a, a part of hell that isn't quite as severe as the others who had seen Christ and seen his miracles and go on forever and ever, just not suffering quite as much? That doesn't make sense. It's so wrong, so incorrect. Have you ever considered what these people will be told when they come up? I don't mean just instantly, but in the, the days that follow. Let's notice over in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. This has been here in Scriptures all along. But we're just speculating here that what are some of the things that they will be told? What are some of the things that, that you may be called upon, just as Ezekiel was told to say to the dry bones to come together and for breath to come into him? He was told to do that. And God is going to use you and me uh, as kings and priests in his kingdom. And we'll be teaching cities and be given rewards at that time. So what are we going to say? Well, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Those who have this thirst for something, hungering for something, and they can't quite figure it out. 
Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without price and without, I'm sorry, without money and without price. I'm going to give you something. You have to buy it. In a sense, you have to, as we tell our young people, we have something to sell. It's a way of life. We hope you buy it. We hope you buy into it. But we can't buy it for you. We can sell it, as it were. It's free, but you've got to buy into it. It's a choice that you have to make. And, and these people, you know, they're uh, Isaiah, speaking to Israel at that time, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come up to where they're living waters, as Christ said to the Samaritan woman. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you go about all the things you do in this life, chasing after happiness, never able to find it? Oh, you have moments of fun, but true happiness. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, that which does not satisfy, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David, as it says there. Now, this is a little bit of what we may be saying to people. You lived all that time, and where did it get you? It brought you to death. We're going to give you a second life, but a first chance. This is a first chance. It's not a second chance. It's a first chance. Because now you're going to be given the truth, and you have to buy it. It doesn't cost anything, but you've got to buy into it. And that, no doubt, will be one way or the other. Uh, Maybe not those words, but something along that line that we will be saying to people. Let's notice in... uh, Matthew, the 11th chapter. Matthew 11. Matthew, the 11th chapter and verse 28. This is what Jesus told the people of that day. And surely we're going to be teaching the people the same lesson who come up at that time. And verse 28, it says, Matthew, let me get Matthew, not Mark. Matthew 11 and verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These people have been working all during their physical lives trying to find something. They've got an itch that they can't scratch. They, they have a hunger. They have a thirst. And they can never quite satisfy it. And they get to the end of their life and they begin to think, well, what was it all about? What, what is the purpose of life? And he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yes, there is something you have to do. There is a work that you have to do. You have to overcome sin. You have to choose my way of life and develop that holy righteous character or allow my spirit in you to develop holy righteous character. That's your part. But that's easy compared to the way that you were going. You don't have to worry about STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. You don't have to worry about cancers from 
smoking or some of the other things that people do, all the other sins of the ages that are coming down upon us at the end of the age, they don't have to worry about those things. They don't have to worry about the broken hearts that are caused by adultery and, and you know, warfare, all that type of thing that man has suffered down through the ages. He says, my yoke is easy. It's not painful as the yoke that you had when you were on this earth before. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. People often say that to keep the laws of God is burdensome. Of course, in John, 1 John 5, verse 3, he says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. It's just the opposite of what the world says. But when you violate God's laws, that is burdensome. It brings you into slavery of all kinds of things. If you want to get into drugs, you become a slave of them. You want to smoke, you become a slave of that. People go out and commit adultery, and they don't usually just stop. It's just, you know, it's a way of life that that is with them. There's so many sins that are, as the Days of Unleavened Bread show, they're bondage. And yet Christ is going to say that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Often in these last great day sermons, we as ministers will mention someone special in our own life that we hope to see again. Uh, perhaps it's a mother or a father, perhaps it's a sister or a, you know, a son or a daughter or uh, some individual who died at an early age. I think that there are those individuals that are going to be special to every individual. Every individual has someone that is special. But I, I want us to think <clears throat> a little bit beyond that. Consider that when we are part of God's family, we're going to have the love of God in us in a big way. And we're going to care for all those people, not just those special ones that we want to see. And, and we're, we don't want to take that away from anybody because everybody does have somebody special one way or the other. I say everybody, most of us do. But when you think of all of mankind and when you get to know individuals, not just the outward appearance of someone, but what's in the heart, What's in the soul of that individual? What is that person really like? What does that person really want? You know, some, sometimes people are, are rather obnoxious. Uh, they, they're just frustrated. They just don't know what to do. And when you get to know them, you find out that they're, they're not all that different from you and me in some ways. I know that there are people who don't even seem to have a conscience. I understand that. But... We have to understand where they came from. And when they come up out of their graves, that's an intention getter. I mean, if there was ever an intention getter, that will be one when they come up out of their graves. And they're probably going to be a little bit more inclined to listen and to learn and to find out what it's all about and to realize they too can live forever as this person who is teaching them is living now forever. They can be born in the very family of God. They can have that. So we need to think beyond that. Consider that when we are part of God's family, we will look forward to seeing not just one or two individuals, but the millions of strangers that are coming to the truth. Those little children that were killed at the school in Uvalde, Texas, they're going to come back to life. 
Can you imagine what it would be like if you are given those individuals to oversee and to look after and to be able to put your arms around them and let them know that it's okay and somehow get them through that to where they can forget all those terrible images because they have so much that is better? John McRae was a Canadian soldier during World War One. I think I've given this before at some time or other. But he penned a poem about the young men who died so tragically in the fields of northern Belgium, area called Flanders, the Flemish area, Flemish-speaking area. And the poem that he wrote, he, he was a doctor. He died at age 48 of pneumonia before the end of that war. But he was over there, and he wrote this poem. He says, In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below, we are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from falling hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die. We shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. That was uh, written during the First World War, 1914 to 1918. And just reading a little bit about it, it says, Flanders Fields was a major battle theater on the Western Front during the First World War. A million soldiers from more than 50 different countries were wounded, missing, or killed in action here. Entire cities and villages were destroyed, their population scattered abroad, Europe, and beyond. The destruction of the city of Ypres and the brutal conditions endured during the Battle of Passchendaele, that was the third battle of Ypres, Ypres, became worldwide symbols for the senselessness of war. When you think of all the young men and women and civilians who have died in battle or war, casualties of war, and you think of all those people coming up. Think of the people over in the Ukraine right now. Their homes are being destroyed. Their whole, their whole, you know, business, everything that they knew, everything that was familiar to them, all of their possessions gone except what they can carry into uh, be a, a refugee in another country. You think of all that. I think it's over five million people now, something like that, that have been displaced. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's happened down through time. Yet we're going to rejoice when we see these young men and these others come back to life once again and embrace their previous foe. Can you imagine Germans and French and British and all the others when they really understand what it's all about and they embrace one another and are so happy to get to know one another and find out that this other person was just like me. They, they're all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, John, well, let's see, Lamarck, uh, Eric, Mar- forget his name, uh, the one who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front, 
There's such a poignant example of a, a German soldier that had killed a Frenchman, fell into the trench there, and as he looks at him and takes out the contents of his wallet and realizes that he's got family just like he had, a mother and a father and brothers and sisters. It's uh, you, you look at the senselessness of our world, and the great white throne judgment is to bring this whole world that has lived on senselessly to life again, to live a very different way, to have a different yoke upon them, an easy yoke. So let's summarize the meaning of this day. God is love. He cares for every one of His children. He's fair. He didn't just call the privileged, the lucky, those who happened to be where a Christian minister was preaching. He, he's looking at the whole world, all of His creation. He died for all, not just the lucky few. There's a resurrection to physical life for everyone to have a first fair chance. Imagine the emotion of those first few minutes, that first day of life for those being given their first chance. That's really going to be something. That's something to want to be a part of, to be able to follow God's way all the way to the end so that you can be there and see that and be a part of it. Not come up in a third resurrection to death, but to be able to be there and to see this and be a part of it. What an incredible privilege God has called you and me to. Truly, this is a great day, the last great day.